Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we will continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. This is what, episode 8, podcast number 8. I know we are only in verse, what, 20, (laughs) but uh, this is what we are about, going through the book of Genesis as we need to go through the book of Genesis in its detail. There will be points in our reflection uh, in our study on the book of Genesis where we hit larger blocks at a time. Uh, when you start getting into the Toledoth, the genealogies, if you will, we're going to take, take more of a broad stroke at that. But for now, while we are in the creation of days, there's so much to talk about that it will just take more time. But I'm doing this because this is what you want me to do, right? <laughs> I am studying, we are studying the book of Genesis as we are because this is what you want. So with that, let us jump into the verses themselves. I think I am going to read verses 20 to 27. So we're going to reflect a little more into what God creates, but then hopefully this evening, God willing, we are going to get into verses 26 and 27. This is why I'm going to read them, uh, which will have us reflecting into the Trinity and how we ought to approach uh, the Trinity, given what we read in verses 26 to 27. If we don't finish up our reflection today, it will be what we uh, take up next week. All right, with that, verses 20 to 27. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the firmament of the heavens. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God said that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the cattle according to their kinds, and everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So let us turn back to verse 20 here, or maybe 
uh, verse 21, so God created uh, the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. Who were the sea monsters? But these large aquatic animals, as maybe distinct from the small ones, right, which are called swarms of living creatures. So the sea monsters, if you go into the Old Testament, are what but symbols of evil in biblical poetry. If you were to go into Psalm chapter 74, Isaiah chapter 27, Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 3, we see how the sea monsters are symbols of evil in biblical poetry, just as they represented primal forces of chaos maybe in Canaanite mythology. The idea here is that in contrast to these myths, Genesis insists that God created the mighty sea creatures, that they are not, we could say, pre-existent powers that God faced as rivals in the beginning. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago. The Genesis narrative is in stark contrast with the ancient mythologies. And one of the things, at the very least, is the author of Genesis wants us to see this, that in the end, God is the creator, the one true God, God capital G. And so, ultimately, this becomes something foundational. What about verse 22? Uh, See here, and God blessed them. So God endowed them with the creative power to reproduce their species. So here we see the divine gift of fertility is always viewed, uh, viewed as a blessing in the Bible, especially in connection, of course, with human procreation. We'll get to that here in a bit. My friends, there's something going on here, just more generally speaking, when you read verses 20, oh, what, 20 to 25, that we are made to kind of reflect into the material world. My friends, in the material world, we might find, oh, what we could see as an analogy, an analogy that ought to open us up to the deeper inexhaustibility of God, but one that ultimately, in the end, moves us in faith. What do I mean? Well, in the material existence, we can find order of things that is so intricate, so beautiful, and so inexhaustible that it fills you with wonder. I mean, we can spend a lifetime looking at a rose, right? And yet at the same time, never exhaust our understanding of the rose, right? Scientists will tell you of the multiplicity of things going on in a rose, and we can see this going on with microscopes. But scientists will also tell us that there are still yet intricacies tied to the atomic level of the rose that we just don't know because we don't have the instruments to discover them. What's more, we not only see the beautiful intelligibility of the rose, but the more we study it, the more we will see how it is tied to the larger ecosystem. So we can begin to see its role and function within the larger whole of creation. Okay, so when you begin to contemplate created things, what you quickly begin to discover is not only their beautiful and wonderful intelligibility and how that's tied to the larger ecosystem in the world, but also, at the same time, there's still always more. There's still always more. And here, 
we ought to extend this reflection to human creatures, that we might garner reflection that in the end leads us to consider uh, the spiritual life. As human creatures, with bodies, part of our existence belongs to the material world, right? But it is also tied to the spiritual world. It is also tied to that which is inexhaustible. If a rose, while it be comprehensible to me, is at the same time incomprehensible to me, then maybe my spouse, Jackie, she could be comprehensible to me, but there will also be a part of her that will always be incomprehensible to me. No matter how much I get to know my wife, Jackie, there will always be a deeper part of the mystery to who she is, and we can even extend this to who she is to me, but also who she is in relationship to my family and extended family. You see, my friends, what we are talking about here is while we can get to know just not things but also persons, there's always going to be something more. And this is what we can spend a lifetime discovering. And it will take us to the end of our lifetime because what we are talking about here is the mystery of God. What does the word mystery mean? It comes from the Greek mysterion, which literally translates as inexhaustible mystery. At least that's one translation, inexhaustible mystery. And yet, if we are studying something, there is something to, to discover, right? God has given us our mind so that we have the capacity to reason, and so we study things. We get to know one another as persons. And the deeper we go in studying things or getting to know one another as human beings, yes, we come to discover that there's so much more to be had. And as such, because we are created in His image and likeness, that image and likeness that is so inexhaustible, there is always more about things, about other persons, and oh, by the way, also about us. Everything that I am talking about right now also applies to us. Why has every human person who has ever walked upon this planet we call Earth experience loneliness? Why do we struggle with loneliness? Because as a person created in the image and likeness of God, we are wired for God. And only God can fill, fill up what is empty inside of us. Sometimes I think we put an unbearable weight upon those closest to us, especially our spouses. When we make the bad assumption, they can fill us up that they can fill up only what God can fill up. You see, my friends, as much as my spouse gets to know me, my spouse can never see the depths of the soul like God can see. Does that make sense? And that depth is ordered to God himself. So when we allow the grace of God to invade our souls through and through, it is then and only then that we begin to address that loneliness that no one can reach. Brothers and sisters, loneliness should never have the last word, but rather we should see it as a sign, a sign of that communion which awaits us in heaven. I reflect upon what I'm reflecting upon now because as we engage creation, verses 20 to 25, we also 
do so in the context of verses 26 to 27. He not only created things, but also human persons. And he did so in his image and likeness. So we can use creation, that which he created, as a means by which to better understand that there's always something more out there. And when we apply it to our own life, we then have a reflection to consider. And that reflection is caught up, tied to that which is deeply personal, especially as we talk about loneliness. I speak to all of this as a reflection of how creation itself can point to the Creator. Bottom line. But also how as human persons, we have a side of us that goes unseen that only God can fill. And that ultimately, the very desire that goes unfulfilled should have us contemplating God who is Creator, but also God who is Father, God who is Trinity. Is this not what we have going on in verse 26? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us, the let us, the, the royal we, as John Paul II would call it. This plural expression clearly does not imply a belief in multiple gods, right? It may be read in multiple ways, and most commentaries get to this. I've referenced it as the Trinity, and certainly that's part of it. But also as a plural of majesty, in which God speaks as a king representing his court or the fullness of his authority. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8 might have us considering a plural of deliberation, in which God decides to create man after considering his options. Chapter 11 verse 7 of the Genesis narrative would have us considering a plural of self-exhortation in which God urges himself into action. Or if you were to read this within the context of Job chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, we can read this as a plural of assembly in which God addresses his intention to the heavenly host of angels. Certainly, among all of these interpretations, Christian tradition detects in this let us an idiom, a hint that God himself is a communion of divine persons, later revealed as the Trinity. Certainly, if you were to read this within the context of John chapter 1, verse 1, as we did a couple weeks ago, we see that creation is the work not only of the Father, but also of the Son and the Spirit. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we read that Jesus, who is the Word, Logos, was with God from the beginning. So he is present here in creation. The Trinity is the Father eternally loving the Son, and the Son eternally loving the Father. And this love is so real, so tangible, so subsistent that it actually creates a third person, the Holy Spirit. Well, then the, then the Holy Spirit was there also in creation. The Holy Spirit is the uncreated expression if you will, of that mutual exchange of love between the Father and the Son. We can think of the Trinity in another way. I think this might help us. A unity in distinction. In the Father, love given. In the Son, love received. And in the Holy Spirit, love shared. Love given, love received, love shared. This kind of unity in distinction. 
I love that. Now, I was reading up on image and likeness in a number of different commentaries, and if you were to go to the Ignatius Catholic Study uh, Bible on Genesis, there is a word study here on image and likeness, and I just wanted to read this because I think there's certainly some insight to be gained into what is going on as it relates to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So, verse 26 is very detailed. The Hebrew word for image is a term that denotes a physical representation of something in two or three dimensions. And the Hebrew word for likeness is a term that refers to uh, a pattern or visible uh, resemblance of something. Genesis associates this word pair with, and again, this is the Ignatius commentary here, with royal authority, as when the first man and woman are given dominion to rule over creation, with the relational concept of sonship, as when a father produces an image of himself and a son, and with the sanctity of human life, as when the Lord pledges to avenge the dignity of human life against murderous violence. Now, what's interesting here is that there is a similar complex of ideas which had currency in the political ideology of the ancient Near East, where the kings of Mesopotamia and Egypt were said to be sons fashioned in the image of their patron deity. So what was typically the prerogative of a ruling monarch in distinction from his subjects, the book of Genesis does something most fascinating. And this is why the literal sense is so important here, my friends. The book of Genesis applies to every human person in distinction from the plants and animals. Other aspects of the divine image includes man's rational intelligence, of course, his dignity as a person, his moral awareness, and his unique capacity for a personal relationship with God. So here, what we have going on is something that is deeply relational, deeply relational. And we can grasp this when we get behind what is going on, just not in the Hebrew, but how this might have been received by its initial audience image and likeness. What is going on here in verse 27? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So male and female. The sexual distinction between man and woman is willed by God, specifically as is its purpose to reproduce the human race. St. John Paul II in one of his documents, offers up a beautiful reflection into how the image of God is not only born by individuals, but is also expressed through man and woman as a couple. So from the image of the natural family, how we might infer that God, in the mystery of his inner life as a community of persons united by a bond of love and shared life, If you were to fast forward to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. Okay, so Genesis chapter 5 starts off 
with the book of the generations of Adam. We read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Okay, so the next time you read of the word image in the book of Genesis, what do you have? But two becoming one to create a third. So what John Paul II was talking about there is ultimately what is observed in the natural family bond can become a prism to better understand what is going on in the inner life of the Trinity. Two becoming one to create a third. Here is where John Paul II reflects into the Trinity as a family. huh? Because we are made to see the Trinity as not some abstract solitude, but really in its deepest mystery how it is family. Because in the Trinity you have fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of family, which is love. Every time a family, male and female, come together in the sacrament of marriage and give birth to a child, that child, which is a reflection of the love shared between male and female, you have footprints back to the Trinity. Are we not all fascinated by how our children look like us? Huh? I'll close with a story here. My oldest son, Colby, was born with a cleft lip. And this is relevant because his dad has a cleft lip. I have a cleft lip. And let me tell you something. It's bad enough that my son has to look like me, okay? <laughs> but let me tell you, he really looks like me. Because not only in his physical attributes does he look like me the color of his eyes the shape of his nose the color of his hair all that but also with his cleft lip so there is never a time where when i look upon my son i don't stop to consider how i am also a son to another father god the father and i will tell you there's been something of an extraordinary gift given to me in my oldest son, and, and certainly this could be said in all my children, as you can say this with your children, but there's something unique in it, I guess, for me with my oldest child, as I look upon him with a cleft lip. The gift is this, that as I look upon my oldest son, who is a reflection of me in more than one way, I am encouraged to become the reflection I am called to be, the pronouncement I am called to be as a son who belongs to another father. Again, God the Father. So this evening, as we have reflected into just not created things, but also human beings, I hope we might take a step back and think about how we are called to wonder and how we ponder created things and as we ponder who we are as created in the image and likeness of God, we might go deeper and deeper and deeper to discover that only God can fill that emptiness. And as he does, we might begin to reflect him more beautifully. And how if you are a parent of a child, 
you might have someone before you that would encourage you to, yes, become a better parent, but at the same time, a better child of God. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift to continue to reflect into the richness and beauty of your inspired word, verses 20 to 27, that have so many things for us to consider, to contemplate, to ponder, that we might become a better version of who you are calling us to be, that indeed we might become that image, that fully produced image that you have called us to be, pronouncing your greatness, your glory, that indeed we become your praise and your glory, that by allowing your divinity to abide within us, that which we call the divine indwelling, we might give glory to you properly. We pray all these things in your most holy and precious name. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.